There it is. Okay. Pay. Mouth. Blow. Scatter. Edge. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn me and have mercy. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those you love who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law not obeyed. Your law is not obeyed. Well, we, we want to be people that obey the law of the Lord. Um, and Sergio says it, everything is okay. Let's see here. We'll give him a little. Thank you. Okay. Alright. And then thank you again, Sergio. I don't know if he can hear us, if he can. Yeah. Well, I don't know. He might just be checking if it's live. He might not be listening because he's still not feeling up to, up to par. Um, on the mend? Uh, both of them are. They're both feeling better today. Good. Um, let's see here. What do we got? Um, uh, wow, I didn't write down any prayer requests. If we got any, I sure didn't write them down. I, whatever. I, one of those weeks again. But it hasn't been terrible. It's just been one of those weeks. Um, let's see here. We'll go ahead and just read this day in Christian history first. Um, hope this one is better than last week's. That was horrifying. Today must be what the seventh. All day. All day. Okay. This day in Christian history, April 7th. All right. We've got one more day there. Okay. How can one enter God's kingdom? On April 7th, A.D. 30, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. Once again, they got the date wrong, but they're just writing a, a commentary. So um, the first, since he had begun his public ministry, since he had per been performing miracles, many people believed he was indeed the Messiah. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew that they were just following him because of the miracles. That's in John 2. Then one dark evening while Jesus was still in Jerusalem, a sincere seeker came to him. His name was Nicodemus, a leader of the Pharisees, the legalist followers of the law of Moses, and a member of the Sanhedrin, Judaism's ruling body. What, when did he come to Jesus? At night. Nick at night. Okay, that's how you remember that. Teacher, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless you are born again, you can never see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, the truth is, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives new life from heaven. So, don't be surprised at my statement that you must be born again. What do you mean, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected teach Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. If you don't even believe me when I tell you about things that happen here on earth, how can you possibly believe if I tell you what is going on in heaven? For only I, the Son of Man, have come to earth and will return to heaven again. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up on a pole, so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. 
There is no judgment awaiting those who trust him. But those who do not trust him have already been judged for not believing in the only Son of God. Their judgment is based on this fact. The light from heaven came into the world, but they loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. They hate the light because they want to sin in the darkness. They stay away from the light for fear their sins will be exposed, and they will go punished, and they will be punished. But those who do what is right come to the light gladly, so everyone can see that they are doing what God wants. Nicodemus next appears in Scripture defending Jesus before the Pharisees. They asked, is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? Nicodemus spoke up on his behalf. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? He asked. The Pharisees suspected something in his question, replied, are you from Galilee too? Nicodemus is last seen following the crucifixion, bringing 75 pounds of embalming ointment to Jesus' tomb and then helping Joseph of Arimathea, another secret believer, prepare Jesus' body for burial. What does being born again mean to you? God gives eternal life to those who truly believe in Jesus, and the beginning of eternal life is what Jesus terms being born again. It is being born into God's family and becoming his child forever. Have you been born again? How do you know? To all who believed in him, John 1, 12 and 13 says, and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. This is not a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan. This rebirth comes from God. Okay, whatever translation they use for this, because they do not cite it here, but uh, it's incorrect to say, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Why is that incorrect? What's that? Only begotten son. What does it say? And I think it's Exodus 4.22, I think. Israel is my firstborn son. And that's the doctrine of divine election. The second replacing the first. He's the only begotten son. Okay. But um, he, uh, you've got Israel is my firstborn son. You've got um, uh, the sons of God. B'nai ha Elohim in Job 1.6 and 2.1. You've got the sons of God throughout the Bible. So to say the one and only son like the NIV or his only son. Uh, as in this version here, is not correct. It is the only begotten. Okay, he is begotten of the Father. Okay, and that is what sets him apart. Very good. You get two points on your evaluation at the end of the class for that. Um, okay, um, let's see here. What's that? No, I thought somebody said something. Okay, we got that. We got that. And we'll go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the chance to come here and uh, meet together. We're missing Burke Carrico. I pray that he's okay because he had planned on being here and it's a rainy day. We'll hope that he didn't get into some calamity or something, but just forgot. Um, but whatever, Lord, we uh, lift him up just in case. And anybody else that is not here right now that uh, uh, usually comes, we would pray that uh, uh, there's nothing that uh, is affecting their getting here because of the rain or an accident or something. And if it is the case, we would pray that you would keep them safe or uh, take care of them in whatever the situation is. Lord, we thank you for the, the class. We thank you for the chance to open your word and to share in it what a wonderful and precious word it is. And we pray that it is handled correctly. And if something is said that is incorrect, please alert us to that, Lord. Your word is too precious to uh, not handle with the greatest of care. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Okay, um, I kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the class, 
uh, I'm sorry, at the beginning of the service last week, or maybe it was the end of the service, um, and I, I had printed this off, and there several people don't attend the church. Instead, they only come for the Bible class. So um, at the end of every uh, uh, sermon, I always give a gospel message explaining what the gospel is and how to appropriate it, and I change it up from time to time. But one of the things I quite often say is that uh, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again according to scripture. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That is what Paul says is the gospel, okay? And then there are things that are associated with that, Romans 10, 9 and 10 and so on. But one of the things I always say is that uh, we are buried, or Christ was buried, and the picture is that he went into the grave with our sin and he came out without our sin. And one of my friends emailed me after uh, visiting and he said, you know, I, I've never really heard that. I'll read you what he said. And so this is just why I say this and, you know, because I wouldn't just arbitrarily say something in the pulpit unless I had a reason for saying it. Uh, he said, you mentioned that Jesus took our sins with him into the grave. I guess I had never heard that stated before that I can remember. Normally, just thought our sins were nailed to the cross, and the Lord declared it is finished. Well, it is finished actually pertains to the law of Moses. He has finished the work that God set forth for him. The man who does the things of the law will live. And so he did the things of the law, and he will live. Okay, and through him we have life. But um, I am interested in the concept of the sins taken in the grave. And so I just typed up a very short thing for him so you can understand what I'm thinking when I say that. Okay, first, you heard the gospel, Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ rose again. My answer to him, it says that he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's 1 Corinthians 5.21, okay? <clears throat> or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He was our sin bearer. Now, this all takes you back to the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16. That is where all the symbolism of the Day of Atonement, the, the sacrifice for our sins, the carrying away of our sins, the covering of our sins, all of it is dealt with in Leviticus 16. It is a great study. I think it was three sermons. It is well worth your time to watch those. But he was our sin bearer. They had a scapegoat known as the Azazel. They would have uh, two goats. They'd draw lots, and then the lots would be chosen. And one would be a scapegoat. They would confess the sins of the wickedness of the people of Israel over it. That goat would be taken out into the wilderness and released okay and it was him carrying away the sins of the people then the other goat was the goat of sacrifice the atoning sacrifice and that one had first the high priest would sacrifice for his own sins because he was not a sinless person and then after that the goats um for the high priest it was a bull for the uh sacri the sins of the people it was this second goat and he would sacrifice and he'd go in and he'd uh, put the uh, blood before the atonement cover, sprinkling it seven times in front of it. Okay, anyway, so that's the, the scapegoat, carries away the sins, the other one covers the sins. Every single picture, every single uh, word in Leviticus 16, everything points to Jesus Christ, the high priest, the bull, the, as a matter of fact, the, the bull is right there in the very first sentence of the Bible. I won't get into that now, but the high priest uh, the sacrifice, the bull, it's all right there in the first sentence of the Bible. But um, the uh, high priest um, is a picture of Christ. The scapegoat, the Azazel, is a picture of Christ. The person that takes the scapegoat out is a picture of Christ. The sacrificial goat is a picture of Christ. The garments that the high priest puts on are a picture of Christ's first advent. Everything points, everything points to it. Okay, so 
He became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He was our sin bearer. Okay, some people say, well, that was Satan. That wasn't Satan. Some people will say, well, that picture's this, or that it pictures Christ's work. Okay, Satan is a punk. He doesn't even deserve to be in the Bible, and he's incidentally mentioned most of the time. What we see pictured is the work of Christ overruling those things that Satan has introduced into the stream of time. Okay, obviously the grave means dead. When Christ went into the grave, it means he's dead. He died on the cross, he was buried, okay? And that equates to his death on a cross. But Paul specifically calls his burial into the gospel. Why would he do that? If it was just the death of Christ, we'd say, well, he died on the cross and that's it. And then he goes further and says in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, in him you were also circumcised. Speaking of you and I, circumcised, made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh circumcision, the body of the sins of the flesh. It's cutting away the sin nature by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism. So he's now equating us with the burial of Christ. Well, if he became our sin bearer and our sins went into the grave and he came out without our sins, then the picture is being made. And that's why we get baptized as a picture of what Christ has done for us. But the actual baptism is, has nothing to do with water baptism. It's what Christ did for us. Okay, so one keeper category straight. Buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We are being given symbolism here. Obviously, we did not get buried, but Paul says we're buried. So obviously, he's giving us symbolism. So Paul is making a point. Christ died for our sins. That is the first goat of Leviticus 16. Christ carried our sin away, the second goat. Actually, I think I should say the second and the first because the Azazel goes first, I believe. Anyway, um, but first and second, you've got the Azazel and you've got the sacrificial. They're both pictures of Christ. He bore our sin into the grave, a picture of the goat being out in the wilderness. Christ went into a, the unknown place, okay? If our sin stayed with him, he would never have resurrected. And so the symbolism is that our sins have been forever removed, the scapegoat, the Azazel. He had no sin of his own. He came out without sin. Thus, the sin is buried and it is forgotten. We essentially were buried with him and raised with him. It is a logical point of doctrine that Paul wants us to understand. And then he says, For I deliver, for, delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It leads essentially to the doctrine of eternal salvation. If our sin is forgiven, and if we are no longer under law, which is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, where sin is no longer imputed, okay, then how? Tell me, O Christian, can we lose our salvation? I've got to make a correction here because I said our sin, but it should be our salvation. How could we lose our salvation? The answer is we cannot. As I said, 2 Corinthians 5.19 confirms this. We could go into Romans. We are not under law. We're under grace. On and on and on. Bible verse after Bible verse takes you to the core doctrine of eternal salvation. If you have your sins forgiven, and if you are no longer under law because Christ established a new covenant, new covenant there's no law. If he established a new covenant, you are not under law, but under grace then you can no longer be imputed sin. And if you're no longer imputed sin and you have had all of your private previous sins forgiven, tell me how you can lose your salvation. Please tell me.
You can't. And that is confirmed in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 with the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee. And God doesn't make crummy guarantees like the government does, okay? When he makes a guarantee, it is forever. He has made a guarantee. And as I tell people, that is a deposit that is given to us. We are the ones that have the right to claim it. God has put the onus on himself to make do that payment when he seals us with the Holy Spirit, okay? The word is aravon. Uh, in Hebrew, it is arabon. In Greek, very rare to have the same word carry from uh, one testament to the other, but that one does because it's that important that uh, we understand that this is a surety. It is a deposit that we have the right to claim to. Salvation is eternal. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, we're in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, verse 19. Okay, I've got to get that corrected when I get home because... I always type things and I don't read them and I send them on. The guy must have thought, what is he saying? Okay, um, anyway, um, Philippians, yeah, take wherever you want to start at. Well, I'll just start at the beginning. This is about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Yes, the handsome man. Yes. Okay, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Okay. Oh, I see. You're, you're, you looked at a uh, title. You must have a title I above do. that. Got you. I was wondering how you came up with Epaphrodites when it said Timothy, but now I see it's talking about the, the verses to come. I don't know if we're going to get that far today. That's, um, he's not going to be mentioned until verse 25. But a great point about charismatic churches is found in Philippians 2.25. So if you're not here for that study, be sure to watch it online because um, there are certain things that uh, charismatic churches will teach and one of them can be refuted right from there, plus a couple other verses you throw in, and it just blows them out of the water. But here we go. Uh, two, uh, I'll read mine, too, because I didn't follow along when you were reading. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Is that close to yours? Close. Okay. I'm hoping okay. your, um, what's your thing you starts off with? I hope and you go, I trust. Okay, I trust and I hope. Okay, so it's close. All right, in verse 17, Paul had noted his condition, which bore even the possibility of his death. Regardless of life or death, he intended to continue on with the ministry towards those at Philippi, and with the full assurance that the Lord would direct all things according to his wisdom. He now says, based on this, but. The word can mean but, moreover, etc., it is a contrast or a complement to his own state. He then notes that I trust in the Lord Jesus. You know, before I go on, I just realized something. Look around here. Other than the new guy and my wife, the only people here are people that go to the projects on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, it's that's a conspiracy. It is. It's a conspiracy. All, yeah. Uh, you guys haven't met him yet. This is what came into my mind is this is Austin. He showed up at church on Sunday. And uh, uh, apparently we can't get rid of him because he came back today. So anyway, yeah, he's an active member of the United States Coast Guard for the time being. So there you go. And this is my lovely wife, Hedica. All of them know her, but you don't. So there you go, Austin, and then a bunch of guys that you don't want to know. What's that? The military's in the front. Yeah, the military's over here. Well, kind of in this line. This line. Oh, and then it kind of jags over. Okay. Actually, the non-military's back there, and that's it. Well, that's me too. Well, I know, but... Can I sit back there? 
<laughs> okay, we got to get back into this. The poor people online must be wondering, what is he talking about? It's just, I, I saw Austin and I never introduced him and I felt bad about that. So there we go. Um, okay, he now says, but. The word can mean but, moreover, etc. It is a contrast or a complement to his own state. He then notes that I trust in the Lord Jesus. Despite being an apostle, this is Paul, he was limited in what he knew concerning future events. Um, you know, kind of on the same line, a little different, but, uh, you know, Paul didn't have all the information, obviously, even about the rapture. He had the rapture information that we need, but he didn't have all of it because he didn't know when it was going to happen, okay? But uh, a guy emailed me today and he said, do you suppose that the um, uh, apostles and the early church understood what the Trinity was? Did they know what the Trinity was? And it's, it's a philosophical question. We can't get into other people's heads. But the first time that the term Trinity is mentioned, I believe he said, and I've never checked that, but he said it was Tertullian, which would have been a couple hundred years later. And that sounds about right, because theology has to be developed, okay? Uh, you can find the notion of a plurality within the Godhead, even in the Old Testament. 126 okay. of Genesis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 126 of Genesis, let us go down, okay, um, etc. So we have that. We also have the what? Make them in our image. Yeah, make them in our image, okay. Uh, we also have um, Zechariah, where it's almost obvious that there's a trinity, where it says, you know, the, the verse that says that they will look on him whom they pierced, and I, it goes to the first person all of a sudden, and the spirit, all three are mentioned right in that one verse, okay. So you, if you were able to grasp that, you could say, well, there's something going on. But, you know, being under the old covenant and being under the Lord, you would say, well, that I, I better not give that idea out because if I do, I'll get stoned, right? Because it's it's just, but you could infer that from the Old Testament. It, it, it is inferable, okay? And then even if the apostles, and probably the one that had the most understanding of this would be Paul, okay? The other ones may not have quite grasped it yet, but Paul the way he writes things, it is clear enough that there is at least an appreciation that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. Okay, he, he may not say it directly, but there is an appreciation of it in his writing. Okay, and elsewhere, Peter says some things uh, in the book of Acts that you could almost infer that, but I don't know. And the same thing is true. The point that I'm making about this is that we can't get into their heads and say, yeah, they knew there was a Trinity, but the Trinity is explained in the Bible. It's explicitly explained if you take the different references and put them together, which is an inference, but you have an explicit reference, you have an explicit reference, and you have an explicit reference. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speaking of them as God, okay? And because of that, yes, you have to make an inference, but it is from three explicit statements, or more than three. But um, uh, same thing here, and that was the point I was making, is that uh, we don't know, but it is not a, uh, a doctrine which, in other words, the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, the Trinity's never mentioned in the Bible. And I like to remind them that neither is original sin, but it's clearly presented in the Bible. Okay, the rapture is never stated as a rapture in the Bible, but the doctrine is clearly taught in the Bible. Okay, so the Trinity is clearly taught in the Bible, and it is a valid thing. Anyway, Despite being an apostle, he was limited in what he knew concerning future events. Same thing. 
they may not have known what the Trinity was, but they knew that there was something going on and that had to be developed. Same thing with this. He only prophesied when the Lord revealed his intentions. This is something about prophecy that we need to understand is that it is something that comes not from us. It comes from the Lord. And Paul was in the same situation. Other than that, he remained dependent on the Lord's ability to take care of future events as they would come to pass. He trusted in that notion. For now, his trust in the Lord was that he would be able to send Timothy with you shortly. Again and again and again, you'll see Paul calling into question the timing of events, whether he will do something, whether somebody will show up. He didn't know, okay? He was not a person that had a glass ball in front of him that showed him everything that's going to happen, okay? When the Lord wanted him to know something, the Lord would reveal it to him. Other than that, he's just like you and me. And as I said, you're going to find out that is true about Epaphroditus coming up soon as well. But um, uh, it, Paul's words do not mean that he was not inspired because people, the reason why I'm harping on this is because people will say, well, see, Paul didn't know this. Paul didn't know that. How can his words be inspired? Just because somebody doesn't know something does not mean that his words are not inspired. Jeremiah didn't know things. And yet later we find out that the words of Jeremiah actually came true even though he didn't know what was going on in the process, okay? So, the point is that you don't have to know everything to have your words inspired of the Lord, okay? This is important, all right? It is, um, it is of note that he speaks of Timothy in the third person, even though the opening to the epistle stated Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. They were both there. They both opened the epistle according to Paul's words, Though they were together as greeters in the opening salutation, the words of the epistles belong to Paul alone. Only his words are of divine inspiration for the doctrinal matters of the epistle. Okay, His intent in sending Timothy was that his words, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. He is writing the epistle as an encouragement to them. In sending Timothy, he would then hear about them and received the same encouragement. It appears from this that Timothy did not carry the letter, but would only be sent at a later date. So the letter is going to make it to him. Somebody's going to be the person that, you know, uh, what do you call it? The scribe writes it down for Paul. Somebody carries it. I, what's the word when you have somebody carry out? Well, I guess messenger, right? That, that's not the word I'm thinking courier. of. Courier. Thank you. That's courier. Um, uh, courier and Ives. Isn't that a, what is that? Courier and Ives. Fancy what? Christmas. Oh, oh I, I just knew courier, so it has nothing to do with letters. Okay, anyway, it just came to mind. Um, okay, so you have the courier, and then eventually Timothy will go. So you can infer that Timothy is not the courier of the letter. Okay, so um, where was that um, third person? Uh, he's sending Timothy. Uh, that also I may be encouraged to know your state. He's writing the epistles and encouragement to them. I said that. Okay, yeah, it appears from this that Timothy did not carry the letter, but would only be sent at a later date. The sequence of events, when compared to Acts chapter 16, shows the possibility of the events as laid out in the epistle to be inferred from both. In other words, the two books stand alone, and one was certainly not copied off another as deniers of the Bible claim. Rather, they are independent accounts which sew together seamlessly. 
but with a precision that avoids any chance that they were intentionally manipulated in order to simply have one confirm the other. In other words, people will say, well, see, this is, this is obviously somebody wrote this. They looked at the book of Acts and they wrote this letter out or vice versa. They read Paul's letter and then they went and they wrote out the book of Acts. People like to just tear apart the Bible for any reason. And that is untrue. If you look at how things are written, there's different information. There are different things that occur, but the sequence of events is always correct. Okay. So we know that what is said in the book of Acts is inspired. We know that what Paul says is inspired. We don't need to worry about people that are trying to tear apart tear apart the word of God continuously. Okay, so I'll read that again. Rather, they are independent accounts which sew together seamlessly, but with a precision that avoids any chance that they were intentionally manipulated in order to simply have one confirm another. Now, speaking about the book of Acts, we started Acts 7, was that today or yesterday? Uh, anyway, we started yes. Acts chapter 7 today. today. And it's... I'm just so enjoying it. I'm 14 days ahead of you guys because I type the commentaries 14 days in advance. But uh, when I send them out, um, I've already gone through it twice because I typed it and then I go ahead and review it. And then there's uh, Joey. Thank you, Joey. This lady up north, she's always uh, checking things for me and she's always finding things that are, are she does a great job. Anyway, I want to thank her for uh, uh, what she helped me with, especially this morning. But um, with that, um, we also, uh, uh, I send them off to uh, two other guys as well. One guy in um, uh, New Jersey and one guy in Maryland. And they also check for errors and they all have their own independent things that they find. And it's a big help. But um, I am really, really enjoying Stefan's speech and acts. You kind of read through it, and it just is—it's just a narrative. But when you read it and you do a study on it, wow! It's—it's it's, what a great, great thing so far. The first 14 verses, so and it's 52 verses long, so it's going to take a while to get through it. Or his verses are 52 verses, so it's probably 54 total or something. But it's a—if you want to start reading the Daily X commentary, now is a good time to do it because. It, wow, it's just wonderful. Anyway, uh, and just so you know, that's where these come from. I wrote commentaries on the New Testament, and so that's why I'm reading this. I'm not reading somebody else's notes, okay. but I typed this probably eight years ago or something. Um, anyway, um, life application. Getting a note or a word of encouragement out of the blue is a wonderful thing to receive. Take time to pen a note, make a post, or give a call to someone that hasn't heard from you in a while, Okay. It's something I try to do. I try to write letters. You know, I'm not on social media. I, once I left that, I left it forever. And uh, emails are so impersonal. I mean, you do 10,000 emails a day and it's just back and forth. But, you know, I try to write people, especially when I'm grateful to them for something. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it's kind of a lost art in the world. One thing that's definitely a lost art is cursive writing. Uh, you know what? They don't even teach it anymore. Mm. But I got to tell you how easy it was to learn cursive and to be able to write these letters. Now I write everything in bold, I'm, I'm sorry, in standard, whatever you call it, just clear face because people can't read cursive anymore. It's so sad. Wow, because what a gift that was, learning cursive and being able to, to write that. But, oh, well, once again, whatever. Okay, we're in 220. So we are. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Okay, let me read this just because I want to make sure it's uh, 20. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Okay, same general idea. Okay, the word translated as for is referring back to the previous verse and its content. 
But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Timothy was with Paul, and he was a treasured fellow Christian because he could fully rely on him. Paul sincerely cared for the Philippians and how they were faring. And he knew that Timothy, excuse me, he knew that, is there something wrong? No. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, and he, uh, Paul sincerely cared for the Philippians and how they were faring. And he knew that Timothy felt the same. His words, I have no one like-minded, demonstrate a trust in him that went beyond mere friendship. I was listening to uh, Acts as I was driving today. I got to the verse where it says that Paul uh, took Timothy and had him circumcised because his mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek and Paul was going to go evangelize who? Greeks. No. Paul? Paul. He was going to the Jews. Oh, and heading he, there. Right, yeah, the and money. he always right, went right. to the Jews first even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles and of course people that these Hebrew roots movement people say see it's proof you have to be circumcised and blah blah blah. They've never read the book of Galatians. They just pull things out of context. He did it for a set purpose but Paul and Timothy were as close as they could be all the way through their their time together. And, you know, you read the book of Timothy, especially to Timothy, and it just exudes the love of Paul for Timothy. Anyway, I have no one like-minded. It demonstrates a trust in him that went beyond mere friendship. The word translated as like-minded is isopsuchas. This is its only use in the Bible, and it means literally of equal soul. You can see the, the word sukas, which is, you know, the, the psyche or the soul of the person, okay? So isopsukas would be of equal soul. Timothy would have care and concern for those in Philippi in the same spirit-produced manner as Paul would have. And that's why he's sending them, because he knows that he can trust Timothy to treat the people there just as Paul would have himself. He then confirms this by saying that Timothy would sincerely care for your state. Paul's words there. The word translated as sincerely is an adverb only found here in the Bible. It is genesias. It signifies genuinely or truly. There would be nothing false in his dealings. His intent was not profit or fame, but the care of others. The word has a kindred adjective, which is found a few times in Scripture, where where Paul calls Timothy his true son in the faith. Okay, so it's Genesios. I said Genesios. It's Genesios. Anyway, um, so this is uh, uh, Paul's feelings about and for Timothy. It was understood that he could be fully trusted because of this like-minded heart and attitude. He was one that realized the importance of the concept which is found in Hebrews chapter 13. So let me take you there and read you what that says. Hebrews 13. Do, do, do. Peter. Keep going, Charlie. Hebrews comes right after the book of what? Philemon. His Paul's last epistle and then Hebrews. Okay? So, Which is not Paul's Well, I, I, what's that? I'm laughing. It's like, yes. Oh. It's his last. Yes, I, I am certain that Paul wrote oh. Hebrews. I'm 100% certain. I've got all kinds of reasons on my commentary to the Hebrews. The, uh, the introduction, if you want to know why, go read it. i got about 15 reasons why. Probably not that many. But it is, it is pretty much a certainty that Paul wrote Hebrews. But it is not signed by Paul because it's written to the Hebrews. Hebrews and they take offense at his name to this day. So you would get nothing out of him. But in Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey those who rule over you 
and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Okay, that is Paul, how he treated those around him and how he expected to be treated by those around him. All right, life application. There are many who act rightly, but for the wrong reasons. It is a joy when we can rely on another, knowing full well that they are not only determined to do right, but to do so for the right reasons. Such a person can be fully trusted in all matters. Let each of us endeavor to have our heart aligned with our actions, working together in sincerity and understanding that we are accountable to Christ Jesus for all we do. If the attitude behind the right doing is proper, then you know you can trust that person. Sometimes people do the right thing and they're doing it for, you know, bad motives. They're just doing something right to get your attention and then they're going to come and uh, rip you off in the uh, uh, the latter end. So you just got to watch things in life. But if somebody is doing something right and you know that they're doing it for a right person, for a right reason, you know that person is somebody that can be trusted. All right, hang on a sec. We're going to go to 221 and go ahead. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Okay, for all seek their own not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Okay, seeking your own. That's kind of the British way of saying it. Okay. Um, oh, you know what? I wanted to say hi to my friend Trent. He's a good guy, and uh, I was thinking of him today, and I, I hope that he's watching. I don't know if he is, but uh, good guy. He was, uh, uh, I, Trent, I'm sorry, he played an instrument, and I think it was either the guitar or the bass. I think it was the guitar for a uh, Christian band for years, and just a great guy. Anyway, he was on my mind, and I thought I'd send him a hello today. Um, the term used in this verse that we just read is literally the all. It is a way of saying all of them. This is speaking of those around him in connection to the previous verses. He was going to send Timothy to Philippi because he found he had no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. None of the others could be relied on in this way. The reason is then given, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. They were more concerned about their own state, their own security, and their own comfort than they were about getting the message of Christ out. It is a sad indictment on the attitude of those around him. However, this must exclude those mentioned in verses 114 and 117, which we mentioned, uh, it's been a couple weeks since we were in chapter one, but um, oh, I'm in the wrong book too. It helps to be in the right one. 114 and 17, it says, um, and most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then verse 17, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So he's not saying everybody or all in the absolute sense. He's just making a point that people are seeking their own and not the things of Christ Jesus. They had become confident and were emboldened to speak without fear, the people I just mentioned in chapter one. Therefore, this cannot be an all-encompassing statement, but one to be taken generally. And more, what Timothy was asked to do was something that a person without specific obligations could do. Others who may have been just as reliable would simply not be able to. The words do not they do not indicate this, but they must be read into it based on his previous comments. Okay, in other words, you may be willing to do something for somebody and you just can't do it. You don't have time to do it. You don't have the resources to do it, whatever. 
okay? But it doesn't mean you're unwilling to do it. I try my best to expend myself for people if I can. Then there's times where I just can't do it, okay? There's uh, seven days in a week, and they're usually full from three in the morning until six o'clock. And I try to make, I, we got some people that are here from the UK, and I have to see them tomorrow, okay? So I try to make time for people um, when I can, but it's not always possible to do that. And so uh, Timothy had both the availability, he had the capability, and he was trusted to do so. Paul is using him. Okay, so um, others who may have been just as reliable would simply not be able to do so. The words don't indicate this, but they must be read into it based on some of the earlier comments in the epistle. Those who were able were those who sought their own, not those things of which were Christ Jesus. So he's got people that could have done it, but they're not, you know, uh, currently uh, able to do it. You've got people that are able to do it, but you can't trust them. And then you've got Timothy that happens to fit both bills. And so he's going to do it. Life application. If you are able, are you willing? There are things that must be done in order for the carrying on of the message of Christ in the church and beyond. In some cases, it is not reasonable to ask someone with obligations to carry on a specific task. However, they are probably able to help pay for the task. A church without people to give cannot continue. Let each of us consider how we will help with the needs of our churches, missionaries, congregants, and so on. If there is a need, we try to meet it, but if you can't meet it in one way, you try to help in another. That's you know what we need to do. And like I said, I'll read it again. Uh, a church without people to give it doesn't mean money, it means in whatever way. If they're not able to give, then that church cannot continue. And a missionary that's over in Papua New Guinea telling people about Jesus and translating the Bible into a language that never existed in writing until he developed that language cannot continue doing it unless people are there to support him. That's all there is to it. And we've got Ray and Jess Willett over in Papua New Guinea right now. And they are there. They are you know, right now they're in the middle of taking care of everybody else's burdens. I mean, the guy, he goes there to do one thing and they've got him doing everything else. But eventually he is going to be going out into a very remote area where there are no English speaking people. And he is, he had to learn the, the native language of Papua New Guinea. And then when he gets there, he's got to learn their dialect because there's like 600 different dialects or some 300 dialects on this island. And so he's got to learn that. And then if they do not have a written system of writing, which is possible, if they don't, because this is what Wycliffe does, is they go around the world, and if they don't have a written language, they develop one. When, does anybody know where the Cyrillic alphabet came from? Does anybody know what the Cyrillic alphabet is? That's the alphabet of Russia and Ukraine and Slovakia. It's the, that's called the Cyrillic alphabet. Some people call it Cyrillic. It's Cyrillic, okay? That came from two people. Um, Methodius and um, uh, Kirill was his name, okay? And they were people that went to evangelize the Slavic peoples north of them. And so when they got there, these people didn't have an alphabet. And so what did Kirill do? And his brother Methodius, but it's named after Kirill, he developed the Cyrillic alphabet. He took the Greek language and he developed it into what we now have 
millions, hundreds of millions of people use because these people wanted them to know Jesus. And that's why we have a Cyrillic alphabet. And there are alphabets all over the world that are just like that. They were developed by missionaries. And they say, our alphabet will not adapt to this language. And so what they do is they figure out a written system that will be understandable to those people. And that becomes their alphabet. And they use that alphabet and they start to translate the scriptures. Usually they'll start with something simple like the book of Mark. Small, short, it's understandable in almost every mind on the planet. Although there are parts of even the gospel that are, uh, I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second. But um, they will go in there and they'll translate Mark and then they'll start doing the greater New Testament. They'll try to get in the epistles quickly so that there's an understanding of what Christ did. And then eventually somebody, because they're dead by now, because it's such a long process, somebody will come along and do the Old Testament, okay? Or some people can actually spend enough of their life to do the whole thing. But um, one of the things that when I went to uh, Wycliffe, because I was going to be a translator with Wycliffe is that um, uh, during one of the briefings, they said that there was a culture that they came across that, that they really had to figure out how are they going to teach the proper message about what Judas did. Because in their culture, in this culture, it was somewhere in Southeast Asia, one of these island areas, uh, in this culture, it was considered most honorable to be deceitful like Judas was. And so they could not use the example the way the Bible did because it wouldn't have had any relevance. And they would have thought, well, look at what this guy has done isn't wrong. And when I heard that, I thought that is such a foreign concept that you do something deceitful and it's considered normal. But that's the way that they operated things. Well, I, I won't... <laughs> I was going to make a comparison to one of the cultures I dealt with overseas, but I won't. <laughs> uh, a lot of underhanded stuff, and it's it's not overtly like that culture. But boy, I'm telling you what, just they're always doing something. There's there's never a direct uh, dealing with people in the, this one culture I dealt with. Never. It's always we're going to reach around you and get in your back pocket while we're talking to your face. Everybody. It was just the most common thing. So anyway, won't get into that right now, but. Um, okay, so there you go. Um, you said something too about about the island. Yeah. That there are so many dialects in the island. Their, their island is about the size of all the southern states put together. Yeah, it's it's a, know, big, it's big, a big island. island. That's like right. A, and you know, the funny thing is that island, Papua New Guinea, was a base during World War II. There was war going on all over that island, and yet there are still people that they have no communication with people at all in the outside world. So it's a real challenge and Ray and Jess are out there doing their thing and I'm so proud of them. You know, just wonderful people. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, 2.22. But you know that Timothy was has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Okay, this is almost the same, but it leaves off two words. But you know his proving character that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Okay, so they added in the work. Um, all right, and I don't know which is right from the Greek. I'm not going to check it right now. But okay, Paul now issues a hearty commendation and a heartfelt note of approval upon his son in the faith. Still speaking of Timothy, he says, but you know his proven character. Those at Philippi were already aware of him and his faithfulness to the gospel message. The verse proves that Timothy did, in fact, travel with Paul to Philippi. While there, they saw his conduct, both towards the gospel itself 
and towards Paul. Thus Paul says that as a son with his father. This is the close relationship that he had with Timothy, one which permeates his writings. As noted above, he considered him a true son in the faith. That's 1 Timothy 1-2. The word he uses is an endearing one, technon. It emphasizes a childlike but not childish approach towards his father. Uh, the 1 John, he says, my little children. He uses that term a lot, my dear little children, my little children. And that's the word technia, which literally means little children. He speak, And that's what Paul uses a form of that word here, technon, to go ahead and indicate this is, he is childlike, but not childish, okay? He looks at the gospel with these eyes of amazement, but he doesn't look at it as a goofy thing, in other words, or whatever, okay? Childlike, but not childish. He has an approach towards his father, and especially towards his heavenly father. For this reason, Paul then makes an apparent break in the sentence by saying, he served with me in the gospel. First, he equates him as a son with his father, and then he diminishes his own position and says that he served with me. So not only is he like a son to him, but he's also almost like a brother or an equal, a, a, you know, comparable in the, uh, in the uh, message of the gospel. The word for serve here, duleo, is a verb which indicates serving as a slave where all personal rights and possessions belong to the owner. Together, even in a father-son relationship, they were slaves as they worked for the gospel. Paul's words are truly of the heart, both for Timothy and with Timothy, as they served under their true master from heaven. So you get that sense from Paul that, you know, this great relationship that he has with Timothy, it's just wonderful words that he puts out. And uh, it, like I said, this goes all the way through his epistles. There's never anything about Timothy that you would think is diminishing, demeaning, uh, you know, he walked away from me or anything like that. It's always constant. Whereas, you know, he had problems with Barnabas. That's in the book of Acts. And after that time, Paul never mentions Barnabas again. Okay, and yet the person that Paul argued with Barnabas over, who was Mark. Mark, is later mentioned by Paul. So there was a reconciliation at least over that, but we have no idea if they ever reconciled, meaning Barnabas and Paul. But, uh, you know, that's the way it is, and uh, people disagree, and it, it's sad, and I'm sure Paul, until the day he died, felt bad if they didn't reconcile. But, you know, how do you reconcile when uh, you just have a disagreement sometimes? So... You know, and it happens to all of us, and we just have to say, you know, I wish that didn't happen, and I hope it can be reconciled, but if it isn't, you just have to live with it. Anyway, um, life application. We're on our, like, fourth verse today. We're just, yeah, we're going way too fast today. Okay, uh, we can have a person we mentor who is wholly devoted to us, following our lead, and carrying out our every direction, but that may not be glorifying of God. Unless the one we mentor is also serving the Lord with us, we have our priorities out of whack. We are not to be served, but to serve. Let us be careful to not assume that someone we are leading is serving us while we serve Christ. Rather, let us ensure that all are serving only the Lord. That's a, I had forgotten I had typed that, but that's exactly what Paul is trying to get away from, is saying that 
Timothy is subordinate to me. He's not saying that in any way, shape, or form. He's saying that he's like a father to a son to me because Paul was his father in the faith, okay? Or even if he didn't lead Timothy to the faith, he was like a father in teaching him about the faith, okay? There was an age difference. There was an age difference, and there's, you know, obviously, uh, you know, when Paul is well-traveled and Timothy may not have been, you have to learn how to travel with people. You have to learn the ins and outs of new cultures, all that. I have no idea what all of the nuances of their relationship was, were, but uh, uh, Paul was like a father to him in many ways, but at the same time, he was a co-worker with him in Christ. And he makes that absolutely certain by stating it the way he did in this verse. It's a great thing that he did, and it's something that we need to remember, is that you know you go into a church, and there's a guy that leads the church, and he's got everybody else serving him. What is the image of him to those people? Oh. Well, he's our great leader or something, okay? And other, it, rather than that, he ought to be telling everybody, we are serving the Lord together. You're helping me in this endeavor. I've got this job. You've got that job. And, you know, I, I've said this before, and it makes it sound pious, but it's not intended to be. It's intended to be exactly the way it is, is that there is not a job that somebody does in this church, and I'm talking about this church or any church, that is not as important as every other job that is done in that church. Because if you have, you know, I'm the one that cleans the bathrooms here. But if we had a bathroom cleaner in this church and you walked in there on Sunday morning and it was disgusting, nobody would come back the next week. That's all there is to it. So the bathroom cleaner is as important as the pastor in that church. Because without clean bathrooms, I'm going to tell you what, people are not going to, they're going to say, man, that place was disgusting, right? So if you think about it from that perspective, it doesn't matter what you do in the church, if it is glorifying of God and it is getting the thing done that the pastor can't do or that the whoever can't do, then your job is just as important as his because it's something that has to be done. Now, obviously, there are things that are done in churches that don't need to be done. And, you know, that's how things get. You know, we've got, you know, the guy that does the latte for the church. Well, I'm glad you have a latte maker, but that's not necessary for the church. Okay, so you, you have, have a to... Latte maker? Yeah, we got one right back there. It's, haven't you been using it? You've been buying them? We provide them free here. Yeah. And we got a donut maker back there. We've got yeah, we got the uh, it's all back there. The kitchen is what about 6 by 6. I mean, it's big enough for a sink and that's about it. But anyway. Yeah, the, yeah, or that's right. The guy that makes the Bahama Mamas. That is an important job. The Bahama Mama. That's from 7-Eleven. Uh, they there's a big hot dog. He had a look on his face. I knew he didn't know what it was. If, yeah, it, if you ever want to just be in heaven's door, just just before there, because it doesn't get you to heaven. But I've got to tell you what, the Bahama Mama will just. Oh, well, there, huh? No, I don't. I, even if they gave the first time that the new manager, it just started about four months ago. Uh, there's a new owner, you know, they buy the franchise, and then he has a manager, and the manager said, "Oh no, 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 you don't have to pay for that." I said, "Yes, I do." I am not taking free anything, okay? If you want to give somebody, I said this to somebody after church, who was I talking to? Um, it, you know, if you go into somebody's business, I don't care if it's my best friend, like the Thai restaurant, I won't take a discount from them. I, we were business partners for 20 years. I won't do that, I'm sorry. You want to give me a gift? I'll take a gift. You want to give me a discount from your business? I'm not going to take it. I just don't believe in that because that is your business and you have to pay your bills. And I'm not going to be responsible for you not making your bills. And if you make a lot of money, then go buy me a gift, whatever you want to do. 
So, no, I don't get discounts at... Uh, yeah, a gift card for a Bahama Mama at 7-Eleven. Yeah, yeah, that'll put you right into the grave a couple years early. Uh, but they're so good. They really are good. The best thing, my favorite thing from 7-Eleven is the red hot beef and bean burrito and a big gulp. You want the afternoon stomach ache. That is it. I love that. That's my favorite. Okay, we got to go on. 223. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. So they just kind of did a little change up and a little. Okay. Um, uh, the reason why we do this, seeing as how Austin is new here, I just want people to hear variations. That's NIV. from the NIV. That's the Alexandrian text. This is the New King James. It's from the Byzantine text. There are going to be differences. Sometimes a verse may actually be missing from one of the texts, and we'll talk about that, etc. But I just want people to know the difference of what's going on and also to see a lot of things come down to translator's preference. They have a right to translate the translate the Bible the way that they feel will be most accommodating for the people that they are uh, translating for, okay? And there are different views on Bible translation. You've got a literal translation. It's this says this, I'm saying this. And even literal translations will not normally uh, follow exactly literal because the structure is so awkward that you can't really understand it. And you're going to see that it, for those of you that come on Sunday, you'll see that is I am going to read the Song of Moses exactly as I translated it. And it is a word for word in order literal translation. Okay, I do add in a couple of words. I'll put them in brackets or in italics which I inserted simply because it would make no sense without them. But it is very, very different than you will hear any other time. And I'll explain this during the sermon. It is not any better. It's just more literal. And, you know, I spent 50 hours typing it. I might as well at least read it once to the people in the world. Okay, so that's why I'm doing that. But uh, that's the Song of Moses. And uh, so you have literal translation. You've got what's called dynamic equivalence. Okay, this is a thought. This is a thought. We're going to make those two thoughts merge. He's saying something in Hebrew mindset. We're saying it in English. And how do we get it understandable? Okay, so it's rather than a word-for-word -word translation, it's a thought-for-thought. -thought. Or you could have, uh, you've got all kinds of ways of translating the Bible. It, there are as many translations of the Bible there are, which are thousands probably, mm -hmm. Every one of them has its own approach in some way or another. And uh, we don't want to say that, oh, that's of the devil because. That's so ridiculous. Now, if it's obviously manipulated, okay, then you don't want to read that Bible, like the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You want to stay away from it, okay? If somebody says, this is a paraphrase, then they're not trying to manipulate the Bible. They're saying that this is what it says and. I'm making it very easy for you to understand. And if they call it a paraphrase and they say, this is a paraphrase of the Bible, why wouldn't you want to read it? Right. You know, you're just getting somebody's paraphrase. Well, there's you know? people in Papua New Guinea. Oh, yeah. I mean, what, that's going to be a that's paraphrase, be, it's, it, I'm it's, sure. Yeah, it, it would have to be for the first several translations. They, they just have to explain things. And then eventually, as... You know, suppose that the Lord doesn't come back for 300 years and Papua New Guinea turns into a first world country and they've got 800 versions of the Bible. Eventually, they're going to have people that are, oh, we want to do a literal translation. We want to do this word for word. We want to do thought for thought. You know, and that's what we have. We've got this giant abundance of Bibles. And so we don't think of it like that. But these people, there are people in the world that have never had a Bible in their hand, ever. 
And so all they want to do with these these uh, uh, Wycliffe and some of these other missionary organizations is to get the word to these people. Okay. They, so, so the people that believe in the King James version, they don't have to worry about that. They just have to teach everyone how to speak old English. Uh, that, and that's what that's the ma- mindset of those people. Right. You know, they they literally believe that you have to teach them English in these foreign countries and then teach them King James English because. That's the only Bible, and that's the, I was in a King James only church. That's what they believe. That's not helping those people at all. That is not helping them at all. Okay. Anyway, um, two twenty-three. We already read the verse. Therefore, the word therefore is given based on the words of verses nineteen through twenty-two. All of what. Let me go back and read it. Therefore, we're just going to read nineteen through twenty-two which we started with today, which is nice. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. Therefore is given based on the words of verses 19 through 22. First, it is connected to Paul's desire to know the state of those in Philippi. Secondly, it concerns the notable character of Timothy who was being sent for that very task. Because of his proven character, Timothy's, and because of his faithful service in the gospel, Paul hoped to send him without any delay, with the exception of waiting to see how it goes with me. Paul's words again. He was awaiting notice of his state as a prisoner. Remember that Philippians is one of the prison epistles. Paul is sitting in prison as he is writing these words to us. Would he be released? Would he be confined longer? Would he face the executioner? These things needed to be determined. And once that was known, then Timothy would be dispatched as a follow-up to this letter. As we can see, the letter of Paul was to be sent immediately. To him, the matter of doctrine and harmony within the congregation was of paramount importance. Okay, let me read. Yes, such should always be the case. I was just about to say that. I was going to stop and hear that's my next words. Such should always be the case. The first thing that we are to do with a person is to tell them about Jesus and get them saved. Okay, that doesn't have to happen in a church. That can happen at the grocery store. It can happen at, you know, the Longhorn Steakhouse. It can happen out on the beach. You just have to tell people about Jesus. Okay, when they know about Jesus, the next thing that becomes primary importance in their life is doctrine. That is what is we would call becoming a disciple. And that's what Jesus commanded, okay? One of the things, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to repeat it again anyway. One of the things that the stupidest, I, I hate to use that word and demean people, but I can't think of anything more ridiculous than this, is people that say Billy Graham was a bad person because he didn't disciple the people that he evangelized. That wasn't his job. Billy Graham was a what? Evangelist. That's why he evangelized. He went out and he evangelized. Okay? And then what would he do? He'd say, if you have any questions, we have literature. Write to this address. He heard him, any of his, he'd say it every time. We'll send you any literature we can. Call this number and we'll get this to you. And he also said, be sure to go to church on Sunday. And I had a guy get mad at me one time because he didn't say, 
He didn't say to go to an independent fundamental Baptist church. And I said, what? There might not even be an independent fundamental Baptist church, and I probably wouldn't want to go to it anyway because they're going King James only. It just People will find every reason to tear another human being apart. Now, I'm not saying that Billy Graham didn't make mistakes and he didn't do things, especially when he got older, which were not crazy, okay? But he was an evangelist first and foremost, and he brought millions and millions of people to Jesus. When you have done that, then you complain about his ministry, okay? But until then, just... Anyway, that, that's, that's one of the things that just really drives me crazy is when somebody says something like that. But it is our job in the church. This is our job. This person has met Jesus somehow, maybe in the church, but maybe not. He has come to the church. The most important job that we can give him isn't to welcome him in and give him a pamphlet about the church and tell him all the things that the church does downtown. That's not important. What is important is doctrine. It is to him, the matter of doctrine and harmony within the congregation was of paramount importance. If you have a church that does not have harmony, you will not have a church very long. It'll be divided and you'll have two churches. That's what's going to happen. Okay, the second thing is that doctrine, and I put doctrine before harmony because if you don't have sound doctrine, you can have all the harmony in the world and you are a failed church. Doctrine matters. Because if you don't have proper doctrine, the next person is never going to get saved. You can sit comfortable in your salvation, and the next person is going to be told something incorrect. He's going to believe in a false Jesus because, yes, there are false Jesuses. Galatians 1, 6 through 9, okay? They're false gospels, and that person will not be saved. Doctrine is that important, okay? So, doctrine, harmony within the congregation, such should always be the case. We should count on our own state as of less importance than that of others who are facing doctrinal error or conflict in Christ. Okay, very, very important. Mom just came to mind. She has not showed up, which means that she probably stayed home because it's raining. I hope she's okay too. Now that's uh, four people I'm thinking of right now that haven't showed up that are normally here. And so uh, when we get home, please call mom, make sure she's okay, okay? Will you do that? Remind me or I'll call her, whatever. But I'll get home and I'll get busy and I'll forget. So just make sure she's all right. Um, let's see here. Um, I, I can't do that at the beginning of the class because she never shows up on time. So I have to wait. And, you know. Uh, I thought I saw her walk by before. She probably did. Yeah, she went to a bar. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll hope not. Okay. She might have gone down to Shaner's to get some pizza. I'm skipping class today. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, life application. I can't believe we've done, I think, four verses today. Wow. Yeah, but I, my comments on them are very short because they're just short little, you know. Life application. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> life application. Let us continually magnify the Lord and his word in all that we say and do. We should never withhold that which will build up others for our own personal reasons in all things, which I fail at all the time. I fail at building people up. I get angry with people and they get angry with me and then I, there's division and, you know, it, it's hard. You, you just disagree with people and it's hard to get over things. Some Paul and Barnabas, there you go, perfect example. In all things, let us let God be magnified first and foremost. These are standards. I'm glad to read these because I type these things and it's what I feel at the time and I come back and I say I should still be feeling this way, you know, how many years later because it's, it's important. All right, 224, let me turn there first. 
just make sure <coughs> make sure that we're I've got a bug in my throat here. <laughs> Two twenty four, please. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Okay, but I see that must be I don't, that must be a bad person that translated that. This one says shortly instead of soon. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. I'm making a joke there, folks. I know that. Yeah, obviously. It's just it, yeah. Okay. I just I know. I just there are people that they they come up with every possible reason for making things bad in life. You can have the most wonderful, beautiful treasure called the Bible. It can tell you the most wonderful message in the whole world that Jesus came to die for our sins. And then somebody's there just to tear it apart five minutes later. All right. Paul had just previously indicated that it was his hope to send Timothy to him immediately and at a time when he had determined his own fate. Now he continues with this thought with the word, but it is less of a contrast than it is a compliment to what he just said. For this reason, it is often translated as and instead of but. What does yours say, and or but? Uh, mine says 24. and. And, okay. Often translated as and instead of but. But sometimes you can have a but and it still gives the contrast properly. Okay, so, and just like in the English, we have the Greek and there can be a word that can mean five different things. Okay, I'm talking about a preposition like that. And you have to decide which it is. In the Hebrew, you're reading the Old Testament. Then it'll say, then Moses said this, and then, but Moses did that. And then it'll say, and Moses did this. And you got all these different things. You read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll say every one of them, and every single one of them is the same prefix on a word. V, V, okay? It means and. And so now you have to determine, does it mean then? Does it mean and? And sometimes you can go through a Bible translation, you can say that is absolutely incorrect. They said then, and it is not happening after. It's a point that's being introduced, but it came before, okay? So you can't just assume that a translation is right. And in the Hebrew, it's more difficult because they're all the same preposition. Always, ve, and, but, then, okay? Now there are other prepositions. You've got from, and you've got to, and etc. But even those will be translated differently, all right? So uh, it, it's, it's not an easy thing to say, well, this is right and this is wrong. You actually have to sometimes study the entire context just to get that one, that one thing that just is attached to the beginning of a word. It's not really its own word in the Hebrew, and. Ve is a word, I mean, it's, it means and, but it is always attached to that word. So it's considered one word. It's not an easy thing. So be, you know, uh, kind. Be kind to translators until you know that something is actually wrong. And if it is, then make a note in your Bible. You know, this should be this instead of this. Okay. Anyway, his next words. I trust show that he has expectations which he feels confident will come about. In chapter 1, he indicated his surety that he would be released in accord with the Lord's will for him. That doesn't mean that it's going to happen. We talked about that at the beginning of the class. Just because he's sure of something doesn't mean it's going to happen. He could have gotten executed and it would not change the inspiration of what we have received one iota. Okay, but he feels confident that he is going to be released in accord with the Lord's will for him. This is repeated now with a confidence that is in the Lord. The tenor of his words shows that his state of confidence, not just in this matter, but in his every single thought was in complete harmony with his faith in the Lord. Okay, as surrounded by the air he needed to breathe, 
so he was surrounded in his surety of the Lord's the Lord's presence around him and guiding him. This is how Paul lived. It's the way we should live. Each and every one of us should live just as Paul does. We understand that we're going to be sitting here for an hour and a half listening to a Bible study, or we're going to be on an airplane for the next four hours. And unless there's a catastrophe, like the airplane falls out of the sky, or a fire truck drives through the front of this church and wipes everybody out, we can be assured that there is enough air for us to sit here and breathe. We're surrounded by air, we know that we can breathe it, and we should have the exact same attitude about Jesus. He is here, he is tending to us, and we have everything we need right now and forever. And if the air stops, or if the Lord somehow calls us home, that's his prerogative. We shouldn't worry about those things. I read an article today, I don't know if I'll include it. If I do, it'll be just the title. But if I include it in one of the reports, the I just copied the title and it said that, I might get the number wrong, I don't remember. It was early this morning. I looked at 8,000 articles since then, but it said something like 58% of all Americans are concerned about nuclear war. And I thought that 58. is, whatever. It was 57 and a half. 57 and a half, that's what it was, okay. No. That is the most ridiculous thing on this planet to worry about. You know what? If a nuclear bomb detonates over Sarasota right now, we're not even going to know it. You know, I mean, it's one of those things you can't control it. There's nothing you can do about it. If they're going to fire off a nuclear bomb and come and blow us up, there's nothing we can. So why would you worry about that? Look at these people. Mom, look at this. Turn around. Oka. Mite koran. Thank you, guys. Um, just put it back there. This anywhere, anywhere is fine. Thank How you, you very much. Uh, you guys, good. That's my son and my daughter-in-law dropping off dinner for us. Thank you very much, you guys. We love you. Have a nice night. All right. They had the day off together. How nice is that? Okay. So yeah, you don't worry about if there's going to be a nuclear bomb. What does Jesus say or Paul? You know, both of them, they give you the sense that don't worry about anything. Jesus says, um, uh, you know, the Lord feeds the sparrow. Right. Why would you worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow's got its own care. So he, he feeds the sparrows. You're worth many sparrows, okay? Let's, uh, He's, let's stick with Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, about right, everything. right at the end of Philippians. Like, be anxious for nothing. <laughs> if you're going to worry about what's going to happen with your, your bank account, or if you, and I'm not saying to not be prudent. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that... To, if somebody came and stole all your money out of your bank account tomorrow, why would you worry about that today? Are you going to lay in bed and worry about that? If it doesn't happen, then you worried for nothing. And if it does happen, then you've got to take the action anyway. If you worry about, you know, I, I'm going on a trip tomorrow. What if the tire goes flat? Well, it's good to have your tires checked before you go. But if everything is normal, you have no control over what's going to happen on the highway. Okay. So worrying is one of those things that we should not allow to happen under 99.9% .9 of the circumstances. The other 0.1% we shouldn't allow to happen either, okay? So um, where are we? Um, I trust his expectation, which he feels, I read that. Um, yes, uh, I'm gonna read this again. Finally, his trust in the Lord was a confidence that I myself shall also come shortly. His decision was to send Timothy it was to be carried out as soon as word concerning him was given. It would be as if a runner was sent with news from the battle lines ahead of the returning army. After that, and as quickly as his affairs could be set in order, he intended to follow after Timothy 
to join the brothers at Philippi. All of that was conditional on his, you know, am I going to be released from from prison. And he says, I'm sure the Lord is going to want this. And why would he say that? Because he knows that he hasn't finished his race. He knows that there's more doctrine he needs to get out to people. He knows that there are churches that need to be established or to have be confirmed, you know, uh, built up. And so he has this sense about him. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but he has a sense about him. Now, when you read 2 Timothy, what does he say? I have run my race. He knows that the end is there. He doesn't have that same attitude anymore. He says, I've done what I've done. I'm done with the job that the Lord has asked me to do. I've been faithful to it. And now, whatever the Lord wants, that's what's going to happen. Okay? But here he has a sense that it's not going to be the case, and it wasn't. He continued on. It could also be that Timothy would be told to visit other churches, quickly carrying the message of Paul's release from one to another. In time... He would make a slower and longer visit to each of the churches. Thus, Timothy's visit would be one of exciting news and comfort. Paul's visit would be of fellowship and more comfort. So this is, you know, what you see in the book of Acts, and this is what is speculating right now from Paul's minds. Mind, his words in these verses are rather similar to those found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says there, For this reason... I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. And then it skips a couple. I'm going to skip verse 18, and it goes down to verse 19. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. So very consistent in the way he handles his words concerning things. And he says, if the Lord wills, which is something that James says we are to do. Because if you don't, then you're sinning. Okay, where does he say that? I think it's James 3. I could be wrong. What book of the Bible is James? Is it the 63rd? Is it the 92nd? Anybody? Is it the 54th? Okay, you're all in trouble. Nobody memorized that. It's the one after Hebrews. That's absolutely right. The 54th book of the Bible. Okay, let's see here. James, and he says... um, uh, works. Let me see if I can find that. Uh, guilty of all. What profit? James 3. Hypocrisy. Uh, draw near to God and judge one another. If Ah, here it is. I'm sorry. It's James chapter 4. And I'll just start with verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay? Now, What does that tell you about 2 Corinthians 5.19? We are not being imputed sin because if we were, every one of us would lose our salvation today, okay? He says that. If you do something, it's evil. And to him, if you don't do it and you know to do it, how many of us say that every time we say, I'm going to go do this or I'm going to do that? Do you include the Lord every time if the Lord wills, okay? If not, he's telling you, you're doing wrong. It's evil. And if you know to do it and you don't do it, then to you it is sin. If we were imputed sin any longer, we would all lose our salvation. And it wouldn't be tomorrow or next week. It would be today. Okay? So thank God for Jesus and thank you for the new covenant where we are under grace. Paul was consistent in his mind, 
thoughts and attitude concerning the major outline of his life. And because of this, the lesser details would eventually find their proper place. Of this, he was sure. Life application, and we are going to be done because we don't have time for another one. We should be careful in our personal words to not ascribe things to the Lord of which we are unsure. I have been in churches where they do that constantly. The Lord said this. The Lord did that. Uh, the Lord claims this. We actually had somebody we did missionary work with for years that would do that. He would ascribe things to the Lord, claim things in the Lord's name, and they would not come about. And that leaves people harmed. It does not help anything. It is very common to hear people say, the Lord spoke to me, or I got a word from the Lord. However, if we follow up with their claim way too often, and I would say it would be always, the word they claimed never came to pass. This is a bad place to be when we stand before him. We can show a hope and a confidence in something without making false claims. If you're going to bring up the Lord's name, you might as well bring it up in a way that's honoring of him, not that is dishonoring of you and bringing his name and his uh, integrity and authority into question. We never want to do that. But it's a very easy thing for us to fall into that type of a trap. Okay, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for the book of Philippians. Thank you for the hand of Paul that has given us these words. And uh, someday we're all going to get to meet him. We're all going to have a good time getting to know him and the things that he did in his life. But that will hardly matter to us compared to the fact that we will stand before you and see your glory. Well, I can't wait for that day, Lord. When we look at you, everything else would be secondary after that. We rejoice in what you've given us and the people that have uh, excited us in these Bible stories, but nothing is so wonderful as the, the chance to see your glory. May that day be soon, Lord. We're longing for it. The world is in a tailspin, and it's getting worse every day, and it would just be so nice to be out of here and to be in your presence. But we'll leave that in your hands, knowing that you have a plan, and it will come to pass. So until then, we thank you for the hope and the, the certainty that we possess in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let me back this thing up here. All right. Break.